Today's sermon is all about sex, though I should clarify, not sex in the abstract, uh, but rather sexual relations within the one flesh biblical boundary of one husband and one wife. And really, the ultimate thing we want to be considering this morning is the gospel and the glory of God and how that relates to our sexuality as men and women created in God's image, redeemed by Jesus Christ and united to him, filled with his spirit, and living in anticipation of our physical bodily resurrection. That is the theological foundation Paul has established in chapter 6, which he is now carrying over into chapter 7. As I've mentioned before, Paul is fleshing out two commands in chapters 5 to 7. One negative, the other positive. Flee sexual immorality, glorify God with your body. And our text today, though it can be a very sensitive topic, though it's often misunderstood by Christians and is often abused, this passage is part of our knowledgeable obedience to God on both those fronts. Having sex regularly with our Christian spouse and thus relieving the pressure of sexual temptation is part of the way Christians flee sexual immorality and glorify God with our bodies. Sex is a beautiful gift from the Lord. Sex provides a unique means through which a husband and wife can know one another, serve one another, express vulnerability before one another, both give and receive. No other area in marriage so closely ties, grafts the couple together. No other area in marriage offers so much to gain and so much to lose. And the ruling principle laid down by our Creator is that husbands and wives are to have sex regularly and not to defraud one another of this special gift. That's the word that Paul uses. Sexual intimacy is not merely a privilege of marriage. It's also a biblical duty. Now, that duty needs to be carefully qualified. Some Christians, husbands in particular, are in the habit of using this text like a club in the bedroom. We'll get to that, but before we dive into the deep end, I want to point out that most of the members of New City are married, and with the exception of one couple, no one has been married at New City for longer than 10 years, which is a season of marriage with many, many blessings, but many challenges as well. Every stage of marriage represents its unique challenges. Sexual relations and marriage naturally, naturally go through different seasons. And every stage of marriage has its sinful temptations and its patterns of selfishness. I think the first time I preached this passage, New City was comprised mostly of singles. And I preached it as a sort of preparatory guide. I was like, this is what's coming down the pike. Get ready. The second time I preached this text, back in 2016, the church was predominantly newlyweds, but no children. We were a bunch of dinks, right? Double income, no kids. And the marital duty of regular sexual intercourse was something couples in the church were working through for the first time. For some members, that was an easy, delightful thing. Others, it presented a real challenge. This time around, the congregation is mostly married with young children. Most have at least one child, if not two. But pregnancy, childbirth, and child-rearing has an impact on sex, and not a facilitating, helpful sort of impact either. Children throw up a new set of very real challenges in the bedroom. Challenges couples have to fight against if they're to have regular sexual intercourse. Your roommates, you're not roommates, rather, you are husband and wife. But let me add, today's message isn't just for the married, just for the parents, it's for single Christians too. Men and women who have been called by God at this time to live celibate lives 
to his glory. Make no mistake, sexual desire is a good thing. That's a a truth the church needs to affirm, even Baptists. Sexual desire is not unnatural. It's not sinful. And neither is it the bane of your celibate existence, single Christian. It's a gift of God given not to torment you, but to motivate obedience. Cultivate discipline. Develop your prayer life. And refine your faith in a sovereign, good God. So when a Christian single inevitably feels sexual desire, it's not an invitation to license and sexual sin, to fornication, to pornography, to masturbation. What Paul will argue later in this chapter is that sexual desire is a nudge toward marriage. Now, you may be thinking, man, what an unhelpful, insensitive thing to say, Pastor John. I've been praying for a Christian spouse for years. I don't need any more nudges of sexual desire. I was willing a long time ago. Well, we'll come to that next week, Lord willing. Paul has a lot to say to Christian singles in this chapter regarding marriage, celibacy, and sexual desire. But what we're going to learn today in this passage is that the married life is the divine provision for our natural sexual needs. Marriage is the context in which sexual desire is given its God-glorifying expression. The only context. Therefore, because there is that God-given sexual desire, and because of sexual temptation, married couples must be having regular sexual relations with their spouse. And as you see in your bulletin, that's our first point this morning. And how I'll be approaching this is by working our way through the first six verses in two verse segments, making observations and applications along the way with one big illustration and a number of applications at the sermon's conclusion that hopefully ties Everything together. I don't know. I don't know if everything is going to be the case, but it ties a lot together. And for this sermon, I've plagiarized great swaths of Dr. Denny Burke's fine book, What is the Meaning of Sex? I've recommended that to you before, along with Tim Challey's short book, Sexual Detox, A Guide for Guys Who Are Sick of Porn, as well as blog posts of Tim's uh, blog post entitled Keeping Intimate Details Intimate. Tim has thought a lot about Christian sexuality, and he's written some really helpful stuff for the church. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And what we're reading here is Paul's response to a letter that he received from the Corinthian church. Chapter 7, verse 1. Now, for the matters you wrote about. And then Paul quotes a Corinthian slogan. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And... This letter the Corinthian church wrote to Paul, we're not to think of this as being like a a friendly exchange. I don't know about you, but I I really enjoy a good debate on a a point of Christian doctrine. I always learn so much. Uh, My own arguments, they become more precise. My false views are corrected, and my understanding of the other person's position becomes more nuanced. I think of uh, Proverbs 27, 17. As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. So that's all well and good, but what we're reading of here in chapter 7 is not a matter of the relatively new believers in Corinth asking spiritual advice from their father in the faith, the Apostle Paul. Their letter to him probably was a response to Paul's previous letter that he mentioned in chapter 5, verse 9. He wrote, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. But the Corinthians, obviously, they took exception to what Paul wrote in that letter on point after point after point, and they'd answered Paul's first letter with a kind of, well, why can't we sort of attitude? Chapter 7, verse 1. Now, for the matters you wrote about, and here's the first matter. He's quoting the Corinthians. It's It's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now, Why the Corinthians are teaching such a thing. The worldview behind this slogan is is very difficult to say. But Paul's response toward their slogan is very similar to what we saw the other week back in chapter 6, verse 12. 
yes, but. Sure, in certain circumstances, their slogan is 100% correct. For example, when it comes to prostitution or adultery, and for those gifted with celibacy. In those contexts, Paul would salute this slogan. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But the way the Corinthians are using this slogan is to justify abstinence in marriage. God forbid. And Paul will have none of it. What they're arguing for in this slogan is strictly forbidden. And he tells them why in verse 2. Yes, but since sexual immorality is occurring, since men in the church are visiting prostitutes, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. Paul's saying because of the temptation to commit sexual immorality, it is the duty of spouses to have one another sexually. Each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. And that makes a very clear point about marriage, doesn't it? Regular sexual union within marriage helps to ward off the temptation of sexual immorality. Marriage relieves sexual pressure in God's sovereign holy ordering of things, that's one of its values. That's not the only value of marriage, of course, but it is a real one. Paul says so in verses 8 and 9, which we'll look at in more detail next week. But look at back verse 8. Now to the unmarried and to the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried, as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry. For it is better to marry than burn with passion. Sex with one's spouse is a preventative measure against sexual immorality. Now, Paul's going to develop this more in the verses to come. But before we leave our first point and move into the second, let's be sure we actually understand what he's saying. Note the emphasis he places on the real threat of sexual immorality. Right? The apostle gives the sinful lure of sexual desire, it's full due in this chapter. New City couples, sex with our spouse is a preventative measure against sexual immorality. The pressure on that sexual spring is loosened. Paul's not saying sexual intercourse with our spouse is a silver bullet against all sexual temptation but it does play a crucial part in keeping the marriage bed pure. So, not only is sex emotionally and physically pleasurable, not only does God give us a very strong desire for sex and then gives us an outlet for that desire, which can be almost transcendent in its pleasure and enjoyment, it also serves our souls. It has a holy purpose, sex does. Sexual temptation is kept at bay. The marriage bed is kept pure. And both husband and wife are doing their part to serve their spouse in this matter. That's what's at stake here. That's why this is so important. And again, just as we saw last week in his injunction against visiting prostitutes, the Apostle Paul could have issued his ethical instruction to the church in the form of an authoritative command. He could have said, husbands and wives, have sexual intercourse X number of times per month. Obey the rules. Instead, God, through his Apostle, talks to the Corinthians and he talks to us on the level of motivation, heart motivation, and theological truth. Husbands, brothers, do we want our dear wife to be in a better position to combat, to confront the very real sexual temptation she meets in this world? Then we must serve our wife's sexual needs. Wives, 
Sisters, do you want to obey God and do your part in keeping the marriage bed pure? Then you must serve your husband's sexual needs. This is part of the way we can look after the holiness of our spouse, doing our part to see that the one with whom we're in a one-flesh relationship is not unduly tempted. Married couples must be having regular sexual relations. Now let's develop that point. Let's move further into the text. Point number two. Within marriage, sexual privileges and responsibilities are reciprocal, which means sex is give and take. It's mutual. It's not one gender's right or privilege to be on the receiving end. I want us to notice here the back and forth, the the back and forth, the reciprocity, the mutuality between male and female in this passage of Scripture. Look at verse 2. Each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other. It's like we're watching a game of tennis. Back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. I I can't think of another passage like this in Scripture. Husband, wife, husband, wife, husband, wife. And nowhere, nowhere do gender roles come into the equation. All the usual biblical gender distinctions are leveled, and 1 Corinthians is full of gender distinctions, probably more so than any other book in the New Testament. But they're all leveled here. You don't see them at all. Not when it comes to marital sex. I really appreciate how the New Living Translation translates verse 3. They make it very simple, very easy to understand. It gets right to the point. The husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs. And the wife should fulfill her husband's needs. And Paul's using a term in that verse that's used elsewhere to refer to financial debt. Only now, he applies it to what husbands and wives owe each other in the bedroom. His his language is astonishing. Each spouse has a sexual debt to pay, and each spouse is is expected to pay up. And what's the theological rationale? Why are sexual relations a due, D-U-E, within marriage? Verse 4. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Brothers and sisters, this is divine revelation. This is truth that we would never know unless it was revealed to us from God in Holy Scripture. Husbands and wives must relinquish to each other the right of control over their bodies. Sexual relations are due within marriage because our body is not our own free possession. Instead, our body belongs to our spouse. Therefore, let the husband give what is owed to his wife. And likewise, let the wife give what is owed to her husband. We're going to be talking more about this in the conclusion, but it goes without saying this debt varies from couple to couple. Some IOUs are smaller, some IOUs are larger. Uh, In general, the debt is defined by the sexual needs of one's spouse. Every marriage is different. Every sexual debt is different. How much do you owe, Christian? The answer is, how much does your spouse need? Some IOUs are smaller, some are larger. Every marriage is different, so be careful, be very careful about comparing yourself to other couples or to national statistics. I'm going to talk about more of that later on, but I'm saving all the good stuff for the end, all right? Now, I wouldn't be surprised if some were upset by verse 4. 
The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. This language of authority makes people uncomfortable, especially when used in a sexual context. It sounds oppressive, doesn't it? And to some who have experienced abuse, it may sound downright scary. But if you're thinking along those lines, friend, I think you've misunderstood the passage. The emphasis here is not on possessing the body of my spouse. Rather, in marriage, I do not have authority over my own body to do with as I please. Therefore, I cannot deprive my spouse. Verse 5, do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time. We're going to come to that, but as with the debtor language in verse 3, the issue in verse 4 is not, you owe me, but rather, I owe you. Verse 4 speaks of an obligation to give love, not of the right to demand love. Do you see? It's not, it's not about coercing our spouse into doing what he or she doesn't want to do. It's, it's not about insisting on our autonomy and our authority. It's about a husband and wife giving themselves freely to one another. It's about being a servant to our spouse, doing all that we can to meet their needs. And what all this means with limited exceptions, is Christian spouses are always to keep themselves available to one another sexually. It's true that there are times when one or both spouses may not be in the mood, quote-unquote, but that's not the point. The point is for spouses to serve one another in love in the marital bed. Now, how does this work out in real life? In the bedroom, what sort of discussions need to be taking place? And and what biblical nuances are needed to flesh this out fully in the light of the rest of Scripture? Because if you're the one who tends to initiate sexual intimacy, and you do so significantly more often than your spouse, because however you want to measure relative sexual desire, yours is greater than your spouse, then this text sounds like manna from heaven, doesn't it? You know, this is the word of the Lord, hon. Thanks be to God. And when there's, if there's any trouble in the bedroom tonight, wham, out comes 1 Corinthians 7 like a club. And if you're the spouse who is generally willing to respond when your partner initiates, though you need more time to prepare, more time to warm up to the idea, and you find it easier to participate and to enjoy yourself when a longer period of time has elapsed between sexual relations, this text sounds like trouble. Things are strained enough in the bedroom, as it is. Now there's religious guilt, there's sin thrown into the mix as well. Great. You see, this is so important. Biblical balance and nuance and sensitivity and mutual servant-heartedness has to be at the forefront of our sexual relationship or how this text is worked out in the bedroom is going to go sinfully off the rails real quick. We're going to talk about that in a moment. But first, let's just do a quick recap. Point number one, because of sexual temptation, married couples must be having regular sexual relations with their spouse. Point number two, within marriage, sexual privileges and responsibilities are reciprocal. And our final point, before concluding with some practical considerations that I've begged, borrowed, and stolen from everyone out of the sun, point number three, within marriage, neither partner is to deprive or defraud the other of regular sexual relations except under three conditions, by mutual consent, for the purpose of devoting themselves to prayer only temporarily. Verse 5, do not deprive each other, defraud each other, except, perhaps, by mutual consent. 
and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. When I was 12 years old, what I wanted more than anything in life, with the exception of a lightsaber, was a pellet gun. In particular, a 357 Magnum pistol CO2 pellet gun being sold at Canadian Tire for $75. I had been coveting this gun for two years, uh, but I'm a child of divorce. I was raised by my mother, and my mom was not cool with the idea of me owning a pellet gun. You'll shoot your eye out. That was her motherly mantra. You'll shoot your eye out. So after two years of relentless badgering, Mum finally caved in, but I had to agree to use the gun only under certain conditions. And if I broke the rules once, in the trash, the gun would go. Here were the hated rules. Number one, I could only use the gun in her presence. She had to be standing right beside me. Number two, I could only use the gun to shoot at a paper target on our shed. That was it. Number three, I could only use it wearing safety glasses. So you combine all those conditions and it just sucks all the fun out of owning a 357 Magnum pellet gun. It defeats its own purpose. And, and there you see it in its classic, most frustrating form, motherly overprotection. The, she just wasn't giving me any credit whatsoever. This is where a boy needs his dad, right, to come alongside and be the voice of masculine reason. I'm still bitter about this. But I tell you this tale of woe to shine some light on Paul's concern in this text. His concern is very serious and it's realistic. His concern is plausible. And as an inspired apostle, he is writing with all the authority of God himself as the Holy Spirit carries him along. Paul is not being an overprotective mother, and it's not that he can't give Christians credit not to behave like animals the second they're out of their spouse's sight. Rather, Paul knows how strong a drive sexual desire can be. Regular sexual union within marriage helps to ward off the temptation to sexual immorality. Marriage relieves Sexual pressure in God's sovereign, holy ordering. That's one of its real values. Verse 5, do not deprive each other. And, and, and this use of deprive is especially striking. It's the same verb used back in chapter 6, 7 to 8 for the man who defrauded his brother in Christ and, and was taken to civil court. So Paul's saying, do not sexually defraud your spouse. Each spouse has a conjugal debt to pay, verse 3. And any husband or wife who fails to pay the debt steals from their spouse. Regular conjugal union, that's to be the Christian norm. Nevertheless, Paul does allow for an exception in verse 5. Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent, etc., etc. And, and this combination of except perhaps, implies a hypothetical modification. What Paul's about to say is intended as a concession. He says that in verse 6. It is a hypothetical concession at that. And then, only under three conditions. Three conditions which must be in place for married couples to go on a sex fast and refrain from sexual relations. Condition Number one is that both partners must agree. Which means neither spouse has the authority to unilaterally decree a fast from sex. The words, honey, I've decided it's time for a sex fast. Will never escape your lips, Christian. You're free to suggest it. Uh, but if either the husband or wife has a qualm about a period of abstention, if both do not agree, then it must not happen. Regular sexual relations must continue unabated. And if the idea for a sex fast is coming from the husband and the wife doesn't agree, 
that is not a matter of the husband being the head and the wife having to submit. That doesn't apply in this case. Wife, you must open up your Bible and show your husband why you cannot obey him. But if there is agreement, if both husband and wife think this is a good idea, then a second and third condition come into play. The second is this. Abstention can only be for the purpose of prayer. So instead of having sex, you're praying. New parents, hear this. I think this verse may especially apply to you. Regular sexual relations are difficult to maintain as a new parent. For medical reasons, you're not having sex anyway for four to six weeks after the birth. But even after that time, you're still rolling into bed absolutely exhausted. You're only half sane. Ladies, maybe your your hormones are off the charts. Your, Your libido is at the bottom of the Grand Canyon. Washboard stomach, no more. Perhaps feeling quite unsexy. Dried spit up in your hair. The smell of dirty diapers lingering in the air. And knowing that you have to wake up in a couple of hours for yet another difficult feeding. That wreaks havoc on a sex life. Right? So, if you're not having sex, pray together. Prayer instead of sex. But with a third condition. Only for a limited period of time. Even by agreement, spouses are not allowed to observe a permanent or even an indefinite period of time for a fast from sex. Regular relations, catering to the needs of the other, that's what every Christian couple is called to. Why? Because the longer the abstention goes on, the more vulnerable spouses become to temptation. Abstaining from sex within a marriage is not a spiritually healthy thing to do. Come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. A sexual fast is not a normal practice, and Paul accedes to the whole idea only hypothetically and under very, very strict conditions. It's an exceptional thing entered into only by agreement for a limited period of time and only so that you may pray together. Thus, according to Scripture, sex must never be used as a weapon or offered as a bribe or withheld as punishment. Verse 6, I say this as a concession, not as a command. So you see, Paul will not raise to the level of command even such a good thing as temporary sexual abstinence for prayer. Sexual desire, sexual temptation is too strong. It's something Satan can too easily exploit. So if you're a couple here today thinking of doing this, all right, of having, of taking a sex fast for the purpose of prayer, take advantage of this concession with great, great caution. There is no biblical command for couples to abstain. But there is a biblical command for couples to have sexual relations regularly. Okay, that's the biblical text. In conclusion, it's a big conclusion. Let's move this this discussion from the theological to the situational and practical. Let's seek for a bit of nuance here. It's one thing to exegete a text, but it takes spiritual wisdom and sensitivity and biblical balance to take what we've just read and apply it to a real marriage where the rate of intercourse is an issue. By the way, if if my eyes linger on you for more than two seconds, like don't take that to heart, okay? I'm just looking at everybody. But every case is different. Every situation is unique. Some are quite complex. Some are the the results of, of years and years of sin. In some cases, the husband is addicted to porn. He's addicted to porn, and his wife can't live up to his porn star standards. So he's getting what he wants on the Internet what he needs sexually on the internet, uh, but the marriage is basically sexless. 
In some cases, husbands don't romance their wives. They just expect sex at the drop of a hat without taking into consideration the way God has created their wife, sexually and emotionally. There are some people who have no great need or desire for sexual intercourse. We'll talk about the gift of celibacy next week. But it's a much greater need for their spouse, and they desire sex more frequently than the other would prefer. There could be physical issues complicating the rate of intercourse. Emotional issues, issues of past sexual abuse, issues related to age, medical issues related to stroke, heart attack, surgery, pregnancy, childbirth, exhaustion and time issues due to young children or postpartum body image insecurities. We never want to have a one-answer-fits-all kind of mentality as to what to do if there is not regular sexual intercourse occurring in a marriage. Each case is different, and each one needs its own approach rooted in the gospel. But generally speaking, how then does a Christian couple go about finding the sexual frequency that works best for them? First things first, do not compare your rate of intercourse with other couples. You are going to see that link on Facebook. Don't go there. Don't click on it. Don't go reading about national averages on the internet. Why not? Because appealing to stats short-circuits the difficult, difficult, but very important process through which a couple can work out the right frequency in their own relationship. An appeal to statistics may allow a couple to bypass the important matters of heart and character. The national average is X, then that's going to be our rate of intercourse. That method bypasses the heart entirely. Here's a better way. The general rule, according to 1 Corinthians 7, 1 to 6, seems to be that the person with the lesser desire should express love to the one with the greater desire by participating in the sexual relationship more often. Paul's reasoning is very explicit. More sexual desire with less sexual fulfillment can lead to temptation. However, there is more to this than simply determining which spouse has the greater desire and encouraging the other to have sex that often. That's basically using this text like a club. Let's imagine a married couple named Rob and Leslie. And for this illustration, I've deliberately chosen names belonging to no one in this church. As with most couples, there is a variance in sexual desire between the two. As is typical, but certainly not universal... Rob, the husband, is the one who tends to initiate sexual intimacy, and he does so significantly more often than Leslie. Leslie is generally willing to respond to Rob when he initiates, but she needs more time to prepare, more time to warm up to the idea. She finds it easier to participate and to really enjoy herself when a longer period of time has elapsed between lovemaking. Now, this couple could easily find themselves at an impasse, an impasse most married couples have encountered at one time or another. This is certainly not uncommon. However, both Rob and Leslie are Christians, and both are growing in their understanding of how the good news of what God has accomplished in the death and resurrection of Jesus for sin continually transforms their lives. And they're both growing in evidence, evidences of God's grace, which is ways in which the Holy Spirit is growing them in holiness. This makes them able to have transparent, patient, kind, communication about these things.
both express their desires and difficulties. Both are able to communicate the level of their own natural sexual desire at this age and this stage in life. Both Rob and Leslie can discuss what sexual intimacy means to each of them, how important it is, and even to seek forgiveness for wrongs done in the past. This is not a conversation they have just once in their marriage, but which they have on a regular basis. And they're wise enough not to begin this discussion at 10.30 p.m. after one spouse has already refused the other. That's going to go nowhere fast. An evidence of the Spirit's work in Rob's life is his growth in love and self-control and living with his wife with understanding. 1 Peter 3, 7. It keeps coming back to that verse, brothers. Live with your wife with understanding. He displays growing self-control in his life and displays growing love to his wife by lengthening the time between his attempts to enjoy sexual intimacy where he may find that he naturally desires to have sex every X number of days, he knows that this pace can be difficult for Leslie. So he determines to seek to maintain X plus one or X plus two days. He trusts in the Holy Spirit to give him self-control to do this, finding that there is no temptation that is too strong for him to overcome through the Spirit's enabling power. Leslie, too, she is growing in holiness, and she genuinely desires to love and please her husband. She knows that her natural sexual desire is significantly less than her husband's, and she also understands the solemn responsibility that is hers through 1 Corinthians chapter 7. By God's transforming grace, she is growing in love, she's growing in peace, she's growing in patience, and she displays such character by seeking to grow in her eagerness... And availability. If her natural desire would be to have sex every X number of days, she understands that her husband has a greater desire and determines to maintain X minus one or X minus two or perhaps even X minus ten. In this scenario, both Rob and Leslie are expressing love for the other. This is not about both husband and wife compromising halfway or just about one of them compromising all the way but about both husband and wife growing in sacrificial love for the other both are dying to self dying to their own desires in order to bless and serve the other but what is not relevant to this discussion is how often other couples are having sexual relations. The moment Rob and Leslie turn to stats, they begin to compare themselves with other people, other people in other life stages and other circumstances. They're no longer looking primarily to one another. They're no longer looking to serve one another in love. They're no longer appealing to the Holy Spirit to sanctify them and to increase his spirit in their lives, his fruit, rather, in their lives. Something else I think we should talk about as it relates to this matter of unequal sexual desire is husbandly leadership in the bedroom. And this is difficult because of the danger of stereotypes. I'm already up to my eyebrows in stereotypes right now, but sexual desire, the appetite for sex, generally speaking, is not given in equal measure to men and women. It's typically given in greater part to men. But I'm not so naive as to think that all husbands will have sex any old time and all wives will only have sex if the, if the candles are scented just right and the husband's done the dishes first. Now, now it could be, brother, that you're married to a voracious sexual tiger. You know? And if so, I mean, if so, there are worse fates in life. 
But study after study has shown that men do have stronger sex drives than women. I'm, I'm quoting the New England Journal of Medicine here. Uh, the male sex drive is not only stronger, but much more straightforward. We're pretty easy to figure out. The sources of women's libidos, by contrast, are much harder to pin down. Uh, but it's common wisdom that women place more value on emotional connection as a spark of sexual desire. Husbands, get out your notebooks, right? This is good stuff here. Women place more value on emotional connection as a spark of sexual desire. So again, at the risk of speaking in stereotypes, just stereotypical generalities, sexual desire, the appetite for sex, is typically given in greater part to men. But why is that? Why didn't God make it so that men and women are precisely, precisely the same? I saw a comedian once say he thought like the sexual relationship between men and women was like a missed high five. Like, there's a lot of wisdom there. It's like a missed high five. The answer, I think, goes right to the heart of the husband-wife relationship. God commands husbands to be leaders. Husbands are to take the leading role while wives are to follow. And God intends men to take leadership even in sex. Therefore, he gives men a greater desire for it. This way, now hear this, this way, husbands can lead their wives, taking the initiative, taking care to love their wives in such a way that they wish to have sex with their husbands. Oh, what a concept. Generally speaking, a man finds intimacy and acceptance through sex, while a woman needs to first experience intimacy and acceptance before she can be prepared to really enjoy sex. And so God gives the man a sexual appetite so he can, in turn, provide for his wife's needs before she provides for his a husband's sexual appetite cannot be separated from his leadership. A husband's sexual appetite cannot be separated from his leadership. If the woman were to lead in this regard, if she were to always be the sexual instigator, then the husband would be far less likely to pursue his wife and seek to meet her unique needs. Do you see the, the beautiful dance going on here? The husband has a desire that only his wife can meet, a desire for his wife. Therefore, he takes the lead in seeking to fulfill that desire. He does this by meeting the desires of his wife that will in turn cause her to see and appreciate and eventually fulfill his desires. And as the husband leads, the wife is called by God to submit to her husband's leadership, even in the marriage bed. As in other areas of life, she is called to defy leadership only if her husband demands of her something that would violate her conscience or God's law. We can see this as a responsibility of the wife, but we must also see it as a, a particular responsibility of the husband. He is to lead in such a way that his wife will have no reason to refuse him. He must be sensitive to her needs. He must be sensitive to her desires. He must acknowledge the times where, for one reason or another, she would find it exceedingly difficult to give herself to him and must keep from cajoling her into acts that would make her uncomfortable or leave her feeling violated. He needs to exemplify leadership as a servant, even here in the bedroom. His first thoughts must be for her, not himself. A husband may tend toward being either a bully in the bedroom or an absolute pushover. To abuse leadership by domination or abdication. 
he must do neither. Think about it. If Adam and Eve enjoyed sex before their fall into sin, there must never have been an occasion where Eve refused Adam because there was never a time when he was not thinking first of her. What reason would Eve have to refuse? But after they sinned, when Adam stopped thinking first of his wife, and when she began to rebel against his husbandly leadership, this is when sex became a struggle. And it remains a struggle today. Many husbands and wives will testify that they have more fights and arguments about sex than about anything else. Sex, money, in-laws. Those are the three things. The most special means of grace to a husband and wife has, on this side of the fall, become the greatest source of strife for many couples. And this is exactly as Satan intends it. Satan hates any kind of pleasure, but he will still use pleasure for his ends. His plan is that people should have as much sex outside of the marriage relationship as possible and as little sex within the marriage relationship as possible. His plan is to mask, to hide the true purpose of sex behind the pleasure it brings simply as a physical act. It's a clever plan and one that has been proven effective time and time again. Brothers and sisters, We may not understand exactly what sex does within a marriage. I don't pretend to have those answers. But we can trust that God has his reasons for inventing it and commanding it. Sex is a call for a husband to pursue his wife and to lead her as a servant into a deeper understanding and appreciation of this gift. And it is a call for a wife to serve her husband Trusting him and trusting that God's gifts, when used as he intends them, always brings good. Amen.